0: Get your Bibles, if you will, and open back up to Romans chapter 11. Let me me say, guys, um, we might get finished early tonight. Let me tell you why I I say that. Verse 16 that we're going to look at tonight is rather difficult. You know, I read a lot of commentaries trying to prepare for this and trying to figure the thing out for you. I read one commentary today, and uh, when it came to verse 16, he had one sentence. One sentence on verse 16. Now, this is a guy who gets paid to, um, you know, to, to explain the text. He had one sentence on verse 16, and the sentence was, this is a very hard text. <laughs> and that was it. So it is a very hard text, and, and I've, I've, I've struggled. And I, my point is, I don't want us to get to verse 17 and then take a three-week break. So that's why I'm saying I might just stop up a little bit short um, of 745 because I don't want to start. I'm prepared to do verse 17, but I don't want to do it and and not finish it, which I think would be more confusing. But um, let me read you the paragraph. Verse 16 is the one that's under examination. We'll start in verse 13. Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the re- reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Here we go. If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Now, guys, um, i, I got to tell you something. That um, uh, This is a verse, well, maybe this whole chapter is uh, going to be pretty unappealing to a lot of you. Because there is one major point that Paul is trying to make. And I'm not sure that any of you are particularly interested in this point. Now, some of you may be. And I, and I don't mean to denigrate your interest. I'm simply saying the one major point that he makes is this. God... oh gosh, God is not finished... With Israel, yet that's that's the point. That's it. That's the point of chapter sixteen. Now, now you do get a little bit of uh, insight as to the methodology of the Apostle Paul, because, for instance, he opens the chapter um, um, chapter eleven. I ask then, has God rejected His people? And and and. To address this question, the first thing he says is no. That's his first argument in verse one. The rest of the chapter is an, is is his adding to this no. What he is doing is adding point no for this reason, no for this reason, no for this reason, no for this reason. <clears throat> now, guys, that that is a part of. A, I don't know. If that's interesting interesting to you, but let me leave you with a big word that will make it worth your coming, maybe. That's called epigetical. Um, what, what you have here is the argument. This is the argument. Is God finished with Israel? No. No, he's not. And so that's his first answer. And then he, he begins to expand his argument. He begins to, to uh, broaden his, uh, his argument to include other things. But basically, all he's trying to tell you is this. God is not finished with Israel yet. Now, um, that, that's what I'm saying. I wonder how many of you are really particularly even interested in this. I will say, uh, I said this when we started in chapter 11. If you are interested in eschatology, you are interested in this. Um, if you're Tom Gould, you're very interested in this. Maybe you all know Tom, but Tom is a... Is a messianic Jew. Is that the right word, Tom? Is a, is a, what you'd call a completed Jew. He was an ethnic Jew who's come to Christ. And so, uh, if, if you're, if you're a, if you're an ethnic Jew, yeah, this is really going to interest you. But ultimately, this is what he's saying. Maybe we should, what we should do is say, okay, we've got chapter 11. Let's go to chapter 12. We could do that. But I don't think that's, uh, the right handling of the scriptures. But, so we're going to do our best to unravel verse 16 for you. Um, and I've got more than one sentence, but just understand this, this is all he's saying. And I don't know which argument we're on, but let's say we're on number three, but this is just trying to support the fact that he is communicating to you. God has not finished with Israel yet. Now, um, stay with me. He has already said in verse 12, um, he says, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Then he has said, in verse 15, um, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Paul is already predicting that there's going to be something happening <clears throat> with Israel in the future. Now, in verse 16, he tells you why that this is certain. That is, why it is certain that that this thing that he's predicting in the future is going to happen. Okay? He, he's called it a... It's a very kind of vague terms. He's called it the fullness. He's called it their acceptance. But there's something going to happen with Israel off in the future. And then he tells you in verse 16 why you can be sure that it will. He gives you two images... The first image is the image of uh, dough and first fruits. The other image is the image of root and branches. Now, let me try to explain those images. Because, again, guys, remember, those two images are trying to tell you why it is certain that God is not finished with Israel yet. All right, that's all verse 16 is doing, I think. All right, first of all, let me tell you that I don't know um, what your translations say in verse 16, but um, I don't know whether you've got the word lump or whatever, but that word is not in the Greek text. It is implied, but it's not in the text. The, way, the reason that it's implied is because Paul is taking an image that is found in Numbers chapter 15. I don't know whether you want to look at that, but I'm just going to read it rather hurriedly, just to. Uh, Paul draws his image out of Numbers chapter 15, and he says, um, "When you come into the land which I bring you, and when verse 19, and when you eat of the bread of the land, you will you shall present a contribution to the Lord, of the first of the dough you shall present as a loaf as a contribution, like a contribution from the threshing floor, some of the first of your dough." <clears throat> Paul is drawing his image from numbers chapter 15. And the image out of first, of numbers 15 is this. You've got a large lump of dough, and there's a portion of it that is taken from it. Uh, it's called the first fruits. Now that is in the Greek text. But a, a small portion, <clears throat> of this giant lump, or this larger lump is taken baked and offered to god and what paul is here suggesting is that if the small part the lump is holy so is the larger lump holy because the lump that's taken out of the bigger thing is Holy, that means that the bigger thing is also holy. That's the image he's using. Now, he changes that and he moves to a, um, what I think is an easier image when he talks about root and branches. It's easier because you and I can see that there is an organic relationship between a root and its branches. Um, they, they share that his root and branch share the same nature. So if the root is holy, so are the branches. Look at the text again. If the dough offered his first fruit is holy, so is the lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. You see, that's what he's doing. Now, guys, let me let me make this distinction real quick. Using the word holy, he's using it in the whole sense that it's normally to be thought of and that it is set apart. Not that he's suggesting there's some kind of moral purity to it. But he is simply saying, if the if the root is set apart, so are the branches. If the lump is set apart to a holy use for God, so is the first fruits off of it. So Paul is arguing this way. If that piece of dough is set apart to God's special use... Then God has said he will regard the whole lump in the same way, in the same light. That is, as being set apart. The nature of the root determines the nature of the branches. Now, now the hard part starts. To whom does the first fruits and the root refer? What is he referring to when he says the first fruits? Or what is the root? Now guys, I'm gonna give you my best guess. And I'm gonna back it up. But I want you to know there's a lot, there's a lot written. Guys, look over with me at verse 28. And this is really where I base my understanding of this. In verse 28, he says, As regards the gospel, they, they are enemies of God for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of your forefathers. Now, guys, here's what I'm saying. The, 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 the lump out of which the, 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 the first fruits are taken... Is a reference to the whole patriarchal system. That is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When he changes that to a singular root, then his, his reference is to Abraham. And I'm basing that because of what, something that he says in verse 28, it's for the sake of the forefathers. Now there's one other piece of argument that I've got, and I, and I hope that that will help you, um, Go with me to Isaiah 51. Because he does, uh, Isaiah does something like this in Isaiah 51. He says in Isaiah 51, 1, listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord, look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father. Now, in that image, in Isaiah 51, Abraham is the rock from which Israel was hewn. It's the same kind of image that you find in Romans 11:16. There is a root that is holy, Abraham. From that root sprung things that were called branches, and they too. Are thus holy because they share an organic relationship with the root. Now, guys, <clears throat> um, that 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 first fruit root image was set apart to God, so that all that comes from it is also set apart to God. Now, again, guys, you've got to remember, what is he trying to prove? He's trying to prove this. He's trying to prove that God is not finished with Israel yet. And so what he tells you is, he gives you two images. He says there is a root, and there are some branches, and that root was set apart to God. And I'm saying that's Abraham. Consequently, all that float because of their organic relationship with Abraham all that flow out of it is set apart for God's special purposes and use. Now, let me, I want to show you one other thing, or two other things, and then I'm going to quit. Does that mean that all Jews are eventually going to be saved? Gang, um, that would be impossible. Um, I'll give you one example the only person that we know that occupies hell at this moment is a Jew. His name is Judas. So you could not draw the conclusion that what these images are saying is that Paul is um, suggesting that all of Israel, each and every Jew is going to be saved. Um, but what he is trying to demonstrate is that the nation of Israel remains a people that are set apart for God's special purposes and his use. Or, God is not finished with Israel yet. Now, let me show you several things, and I'm going to read you a a couple of quotes from that book, and then we're going to be done. Guys, go with me, and and we're going to just track down a few things about the, the commitment that God has made to Israel. Are you ready? I'm in Deuteronomy 4. I'm not going to slow down for you, but you might want to just... Deuteronomy 4, verse 31, um, Moses says, For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you nor, t- nor destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. He will not forget the covenant with your fathers, the same patriarchs and Abraham that I just mentioned. He will not forget... The covenant that he made with them. I'm reading to you next from First Chronicles chapter 16. First Chronicles 16, verse, beginning at verse 15. Um, remember his covenant forever, the word that he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant that he made with Abraham, his sworn promise to Isaac, which he confirmed as a statute to Jacob, as an everlasting covenant. To israel the covenant with israel is an everlasting covenant another one that i want you to see is in, is in the book of amos it's the last few verses of amos and it is moving amos chapter 9 verse 13 Amos closes his prophecy by saying this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed, the mountains will drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. Listen to this. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel. And they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine and they shall make gardens. And I will plant them on their land and they shall never again be uprooted. Um, just a couple of more, the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 31, uh, two verses, thus says the Lord who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that it, its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. Now listen to this. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord. Then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. Do You see what he says there. He he starts by saying the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night and day. Um, There's this fixed order of the moon by night and the sun by day. And and then he says in verse 16, if that fixed order ceases, then I'll stop loving Israel. But the implication very clearly is that fixed order is not going to cease. Therefore, his commitment to Israel is an everlasting commitment. So, ladies and gentlemen, what you're what we're saying is that in the future there is a very significant role that Israel is going to play in in the in the church and in in. In the new heavens and the new earth. Now, what that exactly is, I don't know. I'm simply telling you that Paul says in Romans chapter 11 that God is not finished with Israel yet, and he uses the entire chapter to prove it. Now, I want to I want to do one quick thing before you go home um, because I I um I don't know whether this will be a good application, but I I um I hope it will be. This is a book that I would recommend for any of you, uh, Constantine's Sword. It's really a, um, it's a history of anti-Semitism. It is, um, it's, a, it's a tome, but I'm telling you, this is great history, but it is a history of anti-Semitism. And um, it just goes on and on and on. For, for instance, the Spanish Inquisition. Anybody ever heard of the Spanish Inquisition? Do you know what that was? Do you know what the Spanish Inquisition was? It was trying to rid Spain of all Jews. And and it, and it had the, the Pope's approval for torture and murder. But I'm just reading it just out of, off of two pages. It says, um, this is drawn from a book. Um, and here is an example of a sermon preached to Christians by a leading Roman Catholic in Florence on November the 9th, 1304. After beginning with the traditional assertion that Jews murdered Christ... The friar goes on to charge that Jews are still murdering Christ, quote, I say first of all that they repeat it, the crucifixion in their hearts with ill will, wherefore they are evil at heart and hate Christ with an evil hatred, and they would, were they able, crucify him anew every day. They are hated throughout the world because they are evil towards Christ whom they curse. That was giving permission to the Christian church to do whatever they wanted to do to Jews. Um, and there is some gory details in here about what they did do to Jews. Now, one other thing, and I'm done. This is, this is of course, a little bit more current, but not much. But this is from Martin Luther. Um, in 1543, he published an anti-Semitic text entitled, On the Jews and Their Lies. It, w- it was considered a homiletic massacre. You know what homiletics is? Homiletics is uh, the, uh, learning how to preach. Uh, uh, homiletics is l- preaching. His book was considered a homiletic massacre. In it, Luther, Martin Luther, the, the great author, humanly speaking, of the Protestant Reformation, Luther advocated the burning of synagogues Jews, he said, should be forbidden on pain of death to praise God, to give thanks, to pray, and to teach publicly among us and in our country. <laughs> I mean, it's just it's just there's tons of that stuff in here, but here's my point, guys. How could you possibly hold on to positions like that if you understood what Paul said in Romans 11. I, I, I think there's a, there's a lot of lessons here for us, guys, and, and the, 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 perhaps the foremost is um, we have probably got some positions that we hold on to very passionately that are just downright wrong. That is, presently, us, we folks... We probably believe things that are absolutely acceptable in all our churches that are just as wrong as Martin Luther was. It's a scary thing to think, ladies and gentlemen, that that the church could have gotten that so wrong when they had access to this book too. There were people studying, surely there were people studying Romans 11. Um, I think it ought to be a warning to us. Um, one of my heroes is a guy by the name of John Calvin. And John Calvin said, no man, no man has it over 70% right. So you think you got it all down? You probably don't. And you think your preacher's got it all down? He doesn't either. So... Hold on to what you hold on to with a real grace and charm about it. That's why one of the things, one of the things that prompted me to preach what I preached on Sunday morning is that all of our theological positions must ultimately lead us to doxology, or we're holding it wrong. So, here we've got a very clear statements on the part of Apostle Paul, I think, that God has not finished with Israel yet, and yet the church wanted to burn them. The other thing I'll say, and then I'll quit, um, guys. There, there are two major brands of um, of racism. Maybe, maybe I should say two major brands, at least in the in the South. I guess I should limit that. The one has to do with the black-white issue. The other has to do with anti-Semitism. Um, I have a good friend who I went to college with, and um, he's still a good friend. He's still in the city. And um, he and I get along famously, but he will tell you of the anti-Semitism that his children have faced at some private schools in this city, how his son's car was um, defaced with some kind of paint or something saying... Go home, Jew. I just wonder how any Christian could ever possibly have any trace of anti-Semitism in him if he read Romans 11. If nothing else, ladies and gentlemen, might Romans 11 put to death any trace of anti-Semitism that we might be guilty of? Let's quit. Our Father, I do thank you for your word and pray that it will um, be useful to your people, that you will help us understand it and know that we are limited, that we are, um, that we are broken people ourselves, that we're prejudiced, that we bring our own biases in, um, into our study. So by the power and might of the Holy Ghost, would you lead us, O God? Would you lead us to the place where we hold on to our truth with real grace and mercy and charm? Always being ready to be taught. Always being teachable. Always eager to know more and to study harder so that we might find ourselves approved workmen in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Lord, um, I do pray that you will protect me and my family and this congregation as we are apart. I pray that you will bring great um, spiritual blessing among us. Lord, this is a a very hard time for a whole lot of people. And I I pray that in the midst of this pain, that as you put your fingers on our idols, we might find ourselves, that we might find the delight finding our worth and our identity and our value in the knowledge of knowing that we are in union with Christ. And that is enough. We pray it, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen.